It's the season of giving, and we have been given a gift from our friends at Audio Engine. Yeah, the studio for Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories has gotten a a bit of an upgrade. We've got brand new speakers from our friends at Audio Engine. And I got to say, they're really nice. Not only are they really nice, they're also really versatile. Not only will they plug into our systems here, allow for great playback when we're editing shows and listening to songs uh, before and after recording sessions... They're also great for Bluetooth capabilities. We can move them around the house, and they've got this deep sound, deeper than the sort of audio you're used to listening to on your Bluetooth speaker in your kitchen. So they're great when we go you know, make the snacks, and then when we come in the studio, we plug them back in and, and keep the good sound going uh, for the show. If you're an audiophile like us, you are. You're listening to this show. You love rock and roll. It's going to sound really good when you upgrade your listening experience uh, with our friends from Audio Engine. And here's the really sweet thing. You can support the show and upgrade your audio all at the same time. The folks at Audio Engine willing to throw us a bone for every speaker at every piece of equipment that they sell uh, through our link in the show notes. So if you're going to check out Audio Engine, just go ahead, uh, pull open the app you have open to listen to the show, click on that link for Audio Engine. uh, And if you purchase, once you're on that link, we get a little kickback too. It's a really nice way to support the show and say happy holidays to yourself and to us and to the other music lovers in your life. So when you know they've been asking you what you want for Christmas... Here you go. Send them the link. Audio Engine supporting rock and roll bedtime stories. Now, let's tell some stories. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to rock and roll bedtime stories. Hey, what's up? It's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, during a family dinner this week. Uncle Mike started some insane story about the Allman Brothers. This is the Lister letter, which I, I, I want to assume this happened at the Thanksgiving table, which makes me very happy. Uh, I hope so. You can send us your listener letter. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And this one comes from Devin in Louisiana. He says, uh, during this family dinner, Uncle Mike started talking about the Allman Brothers breakup being due to the mob and a plea deal and all sorts of weird crap. WTF question mark. Please set this story straight. And that's Devin from Louisiana. Devin, thanks for the letter. Um, what a complex, weird story um, to talk about. And the almonds have just, there's a lot of things to talk about the almonds. But here, this is about RICO laws. Which is super bizarre that we're going to somehow be able to talk about t- Trump's indictment in Georgia and tie it into a conversation about the Almond Brothers. <laughs> But I, in Georgia? I, I think we literally we can are. do it. Yeah, I think we can do it. Yeah, yeah. So if you're unfamiliar with the term RICO, it stands for the Racketeer Influenced and Corporate Organizations Act. That's what RICO corrupt, stands corrupt. for. Corrupt. I mean, corporate or corrupt, but corrupt. Or cor- yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, don't you love when Floridian, Floridian slips? Floridian, so Floridian slips? Floridian <laughs> sips and Freudian Floridian sips and Freudian slips. Wait, this Florida is like man. a Jimmy Flo- Buffett cover band. Florida man cannot talk. Um, <laughs> it's a federal law that basically the government created so they could tar- target organized crime and make it easier to prosecute mobsters. Yeah, and to, to just say very high level and basic in all of this, the point of this law is to basically like keep things from happening like you always hear about with Al Capone, right? Like the famous thing about Al Capone, which I didn't go back and research, but I believe this is true, like he caused all these terrible things to take place, 
with the mob and with the people that worked for him. But like the only way they're able to touch him at all in the justice system is like in 1931, they, they do this tax evasion case. That's like a famous thing you hear about. Yeah. And so this law basically made it possible to take high ranking members of organized crime outfits and take them out. It used to be you could only really get the low level guys who were actually doing the work, the acts, the illegal acts, and not the high level guys who were actually ordering those acts to be done. Now, when you think about RICO laws, typically people are thinking about the Italian mob in New York City, like in the 70s and 80s. That's like the story when people are like, well, RICO laws really changed the game and wiped out the mob. That's what you hear. But what's crazy is there's actually a case in Georgia a few years before any of that crap happens in New York where they use Rico laws and they get they sort of the Rico laws get their sea legs. Uncle Mike was right. This case squarely involves the Almond Brothers. And for me, the Almond Brothers were like a late kind of acquisition for me because I like Skinnerd. It was like there was no way I could get around it, but I never got to the dead real directly. But I got to the Almond Brothers pretty fast just by, you know, one of those records ending up in my collection, I guess. And Eat a Peach happened. And then I identified them as being a Southern rock band. In college, someone showed me like the big songs. And I remember being really taken by that sound, Melissa and Ramblin' Man. And, but I was never enough into that style of music and, and into what it turned into, which is sort of the jam band movement, right? I was always sort of on the on the edge of that. And I, I dabbled in it a little bit. I saw Mo live a few times. Uh, but I never got fully into the Almond Brothers. But I understood their historical significance. And they're an interesting story because... It does start with both of these brothers. They play together when they're young. They start a band. It fails. That happens in the 60s. They they do different things. Greg will go to Hollywood. Dwayne will move to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And he becomes hugely influential in music as a session player first. Cliff notes of who's played at Muscle Shoals. I'm going to do this off the top of my head. Stones, Aretha Franklin, um, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Skinner, Joe Cocker, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Cat Stevens. And share. See how I got. Th- I got back to share. We'll get back to her. Oh, we will get point. back to her. There are so many uh, stories. If you just put like Dwayne Allman and Muscle Shoals about records he plays on and things he influences, like he's in the room for so many important records that are made. And this is all before the Allman Brothers happens. But eventually, he decides to start to put a band together. He's sort of developed a reputation down there. And there's people who are powerful people in the music industry, and they're sort of interested in what he might want to do. And he has this idea, like his big thing is, what if we had two lead guitar players? This is an actual quote he wrote in a letter to his cousin at the time. Quote, I have two lead guitarists, me and another guy, two drummers. One is black. He worked with Otis Redding right up until he got killed. By the way, <laughs> there's from some Macon, Gro- <laughs> Yeah. By the way, Otis Redding from Macon, Georgia. Oh, Yeah. Bass player and Greg plays organ and sings. Sounds good, huh? End quote. They, I, I like that letter to his cousin. There's another quote from that letter where he explains why he, why he leaves Muscle Shoals because that's sort of like now with the perspective of music history, we're like, why did he yeah. ever leave that gig? Because he was like turning out gold. And he says, I quit my staff position in Muscle Shoals because all these people up there kept telling me how rich I was going to be in a few years from just kissing the boss's ass and playing. And he writes in all capital letters, exactly what the boss wants. I told the motherfuckers that I was the boss in that department and that they would excuse me, but I heard the highway calling me. Yeah, it's like, I mean, Muscle Shoals, like, 
it has significance like the wrecking crew. If you're familiar oh, with sure. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. those guys are with Brian Wilson and Glenn Campbell. I mean, it's that si- significant, like for sure. So anyway, he forms this band he had envisioned and they moved to Macon, Georgia by also I'd like to pr- I like to point out that's also the hometown of the possible architect of rock and roll, Little Richard. So anyway, the band all lives together. They do lots of drugs. And what Brian and I like to do on the weekends, they hang out in a cemetery together. This is like a whole thing. There's like certain songs in their collection. If you talk to Almond Brothers aficionados where they're like, oh, yeah, that they wrote that in the graveyard. Like this is a whole thing. But Greg moves back from L.A. in March of 1969. And by November, this formed version of the Almond Brothers now has a record out. Yeah, and totally far out. This is an awesome fact for everybody. They do you know who they opened for the first time? They're outside of the South, above the Mason Dixon line. Like they, I always think of them as like Southern, like they it has to be somebody that you associate with Southern rock. Yeah. So imagine being in Boston and seeing the Almond Brothers open up for the Velvet Underground. Oh because that was the thing. Out. Really? Right. That's yeah, that's a thing. That is insane. So as much as they become associated with Georgia, it's funny that you bring this up because they aren't afraid of the North. They'll end up recording in New York a lot. True, but they won't move there. Executives want them on one of the coasts to be close to the industry, and they refuse, and it literally changes Good golly, Miss Molly, Macon, Georgia. This is a quote about what the Almonds and Capricorn Records do for Macon, Georgia. They, quote, transformed Macon from this sleepy little town into a very hip, wild, and crazy place filled with bikers and rockers. And this is true. They get a house there, they party, and it becomes legendary. Capricorn signs Marshall Tucker Band, and they have a flute. And what's more rock and roll than that? I don't really know. <laughs> it's kind of sideways. So they have one of the crazy, the almonds have one of the craziest runs of rock and roll bedtime stories on record, straight up. Absolutely. And this is before we get to the story about the mob and the breakup. Was yeah. the question at hand, right? Well, yeah. Well, let me just go ahead and do some cleanup for us if we just want to categorize all of these stories. The, the unifying factor here is drugs. There are so many drugs when it comes to this band. There, I had a, the Derek and the Dominoes box set when I was a, like a little too young, and I was reading the liner notes, and they were talking about how they had just done so much heroin. They were so <laughs> paranoid that they just sat in their cars and didn't go in the freaking studio. That many drugs. So- this is not an exhausted list of like crazy things that they've they've done, but this does get us started for the story. First, this is very spectacular. There is a time that a promoter doesn't pay the band, so their manager stabs and kills him. <laughs> I've got the deets on this. Hold on. It's uh, April 30th, 1970, Buffalo, New York. The guy's name, this this manager guy, his name is Twigs. Linden. And I'm keeping that name right up in here if I need it. <laughs> Twigs is a wild character. Check it, dude. Next the- time you check into a hotel, you check it yeah. through Twigs Linden. I mean, it really is a great alias. So he owns the first apartment that they crash in. So lucky guy for him. He'd been working in the music industry prior to that, and he gets carried into the Almond Brothers camp through his associations. And one of the things he was known for was having a carefully, oh, this is so gross, curated list of the age of consent in each state that they were touring through. But he's also known for being a wild card with a wild temper. This is from a piece describing this guy, okay? Quote, a sharp-minded creative tinkerer, Twiggs was also an obsessive-compulsive perfectionist with a violent temper that could flare up suddenly and unexpectedly. He was kind and thoughtful and would do anything for a friend, 
but he also kept people on edge. Like Angel Eliota, who was the name of the club owner that Twigs will stab to death over 500 oh bucks God, that Twigs owns the band. And that guy was found not guilty because his lawyer argued that life on the road with the band had driven him temporarily insane. I can't wait to use it for whatever I'm going to do <laughs> when I end up in a, in a courtroom. Now, I, I do want to point out that Twigs Linden spends a lot of time in, an, like in, a, in a hospital yeah. uh, specifically for his mental health around this time. So it, it's not like he just walks out of the courtroom scot-free. But yeah, he, he technically gets away with it because of that defense, which is insane. Now, continue down your list of crazy stuff they get into. This is something I didn't know until the research here. The same year that that happened, Dwayne overdoses on opium which I've never actually had that conversation with anyone talking about that. And he has to be revived. So he like went out and he's in the hospital for two days. So his daughter will eventually write a book about him. And she talks about his drug addiction in this way, which I think is worth mentioning here. Quote, ultimately, his charm and intelligence were being pulled under a wave of arrogance and dark moods. When things went dark with him, my mom thought Dwayne could just stop coming home altogether or he could come home so changed she wouldn't want him there. She wasn't sure which would feel worse. This life she had built with him was so fragile. And if you don't know much about Dwayne Allman, if we want to continue down this crazy list of crazy shit with the band, the drugs, that's not what kills him. Dwayne actually dies a month before his 25th birthday in a motorcycle accident. I want you to read now from the original piece in the Macon Telegraph. So I found this. This is the actual thing that goes out in the newspaper the next day. There's a a writer named Frederick Berger on October 30th, 1971. The title of this piece is Allman Brothers Leader Dies in Cycle Accident. Dwayne Allman, founder and lead singer of the nationally prominent Macon-based Allman Brothers Band, was killed last night when his motorcycle spun out of control. Allman never regained consciousness from the accident and died at 8.40 p.m. at the Middle Georgia Medical Center. The accident occurred at 5.44 p.m. as Allman was traveling west on Hillcrest Avenue through the Bartlett Avenue intersection. And this gets interesting. So the piece continues. Allman lost control of his motorcycle just after a truck driven by Charles Wirtz had entered the intersection and turned north from Hillcrest onto Bartlett. In a statement to police, Wirtz said that, quote, after completing a half turn, I saw a motorcycle about 20 feet behind my truck. I slowed and I heard a crush. I stopped and couldn't tell whether the man on the motorcycle had hit me or not. I saw a boy lying on the pavement with the cycle going as fast as it could. I walked over and I shut it off. So he walks over and turns the motorcycle off. In his statement, Wirtz said he felt no impact or jar and that he didn't know if Allman had crashed into his truck or not. Investigating police officers said in their opinion, the truck and the motorcycle actually didn't collide. They said they couldn't find any evidence the two had hit. The officer said they also found no evidence that Allman had applied brakes before he swerved to keep from hitting the truck's right rear end. The investigating officer said Allman skidded about 90 feet across the intersection center line. It was a 35-mile-an-hour zone, and he was going at least 55. And here's the synopsis of the accident. as taken from a resource you can find in the show notes called the Mountain Eagle. On the afternoon of the accident, Dwayne Allman was speeding along Hillcrest Avenue on his Harley-Davidson Sportster when he slowed to let a flatbed truck carrying a huge crane boom make a left-hand turn in front of him. 
Almond pulled the bike towards the center of the road so he could swing around the outside of the truck. But in the middle of its turn, the flatbed suddenly rumbled to a stop. Unable to maneuver around or under the giant obstacle, Almond ran right into it. The crane's weight ball knocked him off his Harley, which bounced up in the air off of Almond's chest before skidding to a stop along the curb. The Guitarist was not killed instantly. In fact, he had no visible injuries except bumps and scrapes, but he died in surgery later that evening. That is a lot right. to take in. That is not like I drove my bike too fast. Like the the details of that and the weird equipment involved and all that, it's it's wild. The band's gonna actually consider stopping. Like they, they've kind of just gotten started, but with everything wrapped up in this tragedy they like have a band meeting and are like do we go on do we not and they had just started to really get some recognition due in part to the fact they had just released this record called live at the fillmore east this came out in 71 now this was the first time they'd been captured on vinyl in their live element and this is important for this band and this is what they sort of figure out with live at the fillmore east which becomes one of their best known pieces you need to hear it live like it's fine on record but you need to hear it live yeah and they become one of those bands. I've still got crazy shit to to add to what we've, we're talking about. <laughs> Their bass player's name is a guy named Barry Oakley, and he'd been playing with Dickie Betts. And so when Betts gets pulled into the Almonds, he comes to and is considered a founding member. Now, I just discovered something like in, in late late parts of this research. I didn't know this. So I knew that Things that I had read said in anything you read about Barry is that like Dwayne's death really messes him up. But what you don't read is why. And here's what I found out after three or four or five or 27 sources. So he actually, Dwayne, was coming from Barry's house. Dwayne had stopped at Barry's house in Macon to tell Barry's wife happy birthday. And then he had left Barry's house and he gets in that accident. So basically the last people to see him alive, who are his friends, are Barry and his wife. And so this messes him up badly. And so this sets up this next part of what you're going to tell us to be either terribly coincidental or absolutely not a coincidence at all, which is probably where I side if if having to choose. So if you're ready, everybody, take the leap with us. A little over the year after Dwayne's motorcycle accident, Barry has his own. And here's the similarities. It's a motorcycle. He's thrown from it, and it happens three blocks from where Dwayne died. November 11th, 1972. City bus. That's what he hits. He's thrown from his motorcycle, and he strikes his head on the road. And he declines medical treatment. So he goes home and then gets home. People figure out something is not right. He's rushed to the hospital and he dies because his brain starts to swell and his skull is fractured. And it's, you know, it's hard not to think that this might have been a death wish. Yes. So lots of death and tragedy with this band, right? And we're not even to what Devin asked us about in the first place. Geez. So let's bridge this distance between 72 and mid 76, because that's where the main story takes place. While doing that, can I add to the list of crazy shit that we've already done? <laughs> yes, but first, let me point something out uh, in the show notes. So if you want to go really deep on the almonds, 
we have uh, there's an amazing there's a lot of amazing artifacts there's a lot of journalism about this band because it's all concentrated in Macon so both of those motorcycle accidents happen in Macon Georgia the criminal case we're going to talk about the court trials happen in Macon Georgia so all of this stuff is like very concentrated and very covered in a medium to small size town as opposed to being in some major metropolitan area or spread out across the United States so there's like a lot of stuff but one of the really interesting things from a historical perspective that exists is a 1973 Rolling Stone article about the almonds in the aftermath of Dwayne's death. And it is written by a young journalist named Cameron Crowe. And if you want to just dive deep, it answers a lot of questions about the early history of the almonds. It goes through all of the stuff about the early bands that Dwayne and Greg were in together. Like they had multiple record deals before he even goes to Muscle Shoals. They have a couple different bands you've never heard that put out records. Like, there's a lot of stuff there. We're not going to get into all of it, but that's a great piece, and it is marked in the show notes if you, on your lunch break today, want to you know lose 20 minutes and enjoy yourself. As we get back on track, like back on the train tracks here, so before this second motorcycle crash, there are talks between the Almonds and the Dead for a concert tour. And these plans get scaled back in the aftermath of the tragedy, but the two acts decide they'll stu- still do a couple of dates together. And those dates include RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. And there could be another episode of the show just about this concert because it's one of those crazy concerts where like too many people show up and things go wrong and you know all of that stuff. But there is a great piece in the show notes about it. Again, if you want to dive deeper, you'll want to check that out too. And from a crowd venue perspective, this show goes sideways. And the bands are having difficulty too. And if you know a bit about the dead, there's a tale about the the dead, the Grateful Dead's roadies. They really like to get people to try LSD and so, maybe without telling them. Yes, that's coded language. What you're trying to say is that they were dosing people. <laughs> that's that's correct. And it was common practice for them. And you know, if you read more, I don't want to get into LSD and how that was happening with the group and where that all manifested in there. But anyway, the Almond brothers were warned to keep their drinks close to them, but no one said anything to their roadies. So the dead had this roadie named Owsley Stanley. And I, I, I say roadie in quotes. Okay. He was his main thing that he did for the dead was he was their chemist and he made LSD and it was his goal so when you will you will hear people say that people associated with the dead at the time were evangelists for LSD, which I, I do not think is an overstatement or a misuse of the term because they were very invested in getting people to have this experience that they did feel was religious to a certain degree, right? And so it was, right. I mean, this guy, Owsley Stanley, would say that it was his goal to dose every living person. So Kim Payne, he wrote for the Almonds, he doesn't watch his drink. He gets dosed by Osley Stanley. Now, I also have heard this particular story in the research about Kim Payne and about Osley Stanley associated with different dead shows or dead almond shows. So dates at the Fillmore, dates at RFK. We're going to say for the sake of today that it happens at RFK because it plays into other things that definitely happened at RFK. But this was like the shit that happened when these two bands played together. Kim Payne, who wrote for the almonds, claims he opened up a box of cables and freaks out because, quote, they were all moving 
and looked like snakes. There's so many things to talk about here. Several years ago, I read about some archivalist or someone who got into some, some old gear um, where the dead had these things that were in storage or whatever, and he accidentally touched something. Oh, my and God, really? Oops. <laughs> um, and it's like it's where you had to find out you had to wear gloves for stuff. But oh anyway, when anytime you read about this you know, story, there's always this mention of this backstage brawl that's involved. And supposedly some roadies got fired, and we had a little trouble getting the details okay, initially. Okay, so I didn't i could not find the details of the story i was going through all sorts of stuff and you just basically read rfk stadium there's a fight backstage with the roadies and i'm like i need more details i went through sources and sources and sources and i finally in the 11th hour as we were putting the finishing touches on recording this found the story all right so here's oh, what here's okay. what happens so there's a guy from capricorn records which you already mentioned right so the almonds are on capricorn and he was a VP, his name, and I'm not making this up, is Dick Woolley. And he wanders backstage, and he sees that all the damn roadies are high AF. So he does not like it. Uh, but they don't like that he's backstage, because the other side of the story, there's always two sides of the story, Ask Phil Collins. Uh, the other side of the story is that there were a lot of people in the Almonds camp and in the Grateful Dead camp. Think about how many like hangers-on they had. And there was a lot of people backstage, and this was like a constructed stage because it was at the stadium. And so these guys who are probably inebriated and potentially, you know, their judgment is is not as good as it should be because of drugs they have been given either voluntarily or involuntarily, but they are responsible for the backstage area. And they start to worry that the stage is going to collapse. And in Kim Payne, who we just mentioned about the snakes, uh, he is he thinks this is not a good. So all their nerves, all their worries, they're at their peak. And then here's what he says happens. Quote, next thing I know, there's this guy I'd never seen before with short hair, wearing a suit and holding a briefcase. Now, if you know anything about the almonds and the Grateful Dead, that is not what they looked like or what the people they hung out with looked like at the time, right? He's coming yeah. up, and I just said... And I saw this guy, and I just said, no, you're not. And I punched him in the nose. Uh, so so this sets off a fight between Dick Woolley from Capricorn Records and several of the Almond Roadies who will... I mean, they don't know who he is. They just see some guy swinging at their guy, right? And so they beat him up and leave him bleeding on the side of the stage. The guy from the Ouch. record label. Uh, and given that they worked for the record label, or that he worked for the record label, they were fired after the shows. So these poor dosed roadies that had no idea they were getting dosed, they lose their jobs because of the dead's roadies. Owsley Stanley, you a-hole. And it's also during this time that the almonds are making so much money that they can rent a plane. And this is the plane that oh Zeppelin God. and the Stones were using oh at the God. same time. And this is a quote from Greg Allman, quote, when we got that goddamn plane, it was the beginning of the end, end now, quote. I would say the drugs were more to blame than the plane, <laughs> but the the plane is, is a product of ego, and ego and drugs are two ingredients that are probably going to be the downfall of your band. Like, that's just how rock history works. We are students, and we know that. Right. And back to the task here between this gap of 72 and 76, 
Dwayne dies, and the band will finish Eat a Peach, which is a very famous record of theirs. There's a good chance that you're a casual fan. This could be the album you know, and that album is after Dwayne. Which is wild, they t- right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they tour and become more and more famous while also doing drugs. Well, and Greg Ullman, we cannot forget this, because this is a key component to the story that almost gets forgotten. Greg Ullman gets tabloid famous. Tabloid so famous. He gets more famous than the music. And this is a weird thing to have happen for a band like the Almonds, who are all about the music. Now, if you're Maroon 5 and you get more famous than the music, like Adam Levine did, that's fine. Because the music, it's you know, the music's the music. The music is a product, it's content, it's whatever, right? No, no disrespect to Maroon 5, I'm a fan, but like that's just what it is. But the Almonds are all about the music. They're about the live experience, they're about right. And so it's weird when they just have this soaring, like, just head-on collision with, like, tabloid celebrity fame. And this happens because a woman named Cher breaks up with a man named Sonny, and within days of being officially divorced from this TV husband, real-life husband, but also, like, TV partner, who everybody knows, she is spotted with Greg. And not only is she spotted. Yeah, they get married, right? <laughs> um, and then and then they try to get unmarried because that's what happens. So it's like it's, it's like Ross and Rachel on Friends. It's like full on Kardashian. Imagine if this happened to Dave Grohl or Jason Isbell. Like it's just so, like yeah. significant people who are all authentic sudden, musicians yeah. like yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so so that's a great that's a great point it's like the difference between travis barker being with a kardashian and jason isbell being with a kardashian right like that would be strange and and yeah. that's sort of what happens though i wouldn't necessarily put share on the kardashians together uh but just for the sake of our story think about that because it's it's crazy and it's in this in-between time like before share but after eat a peach that greg meets somebody else who proves to be even more significant in his life than Cher was. And that's a right. guy named Scooter Herring. And Scooter um, and Greg, they meet at a bar in Macon. Did I say Little Richard's from there? And they become <laughs> pals first. Then they become boss and employee. Scooter is a bodyguard and then becomes Allman's personal manager when he's on the road, which speaking of, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, speaking of coded language, uh, with the, that means Scooter got drugs for Greg Allman. Like, that's really all he did. Like, I don't think he was really a bodyguard. Like, I don't know. Maybe he was a bodyguard. Maybe he was a manager. Mostly, he just made sure that this dude was plied with the pharmaceuticals he wanted. Yeah, and now we're going to dive into on the slip and slide to answer Devin's question here. And to do that, we have to talk about the Dixie Mafia. The Dixie Mafia! Uh, Okay, so the term Dixie Mafia, let's clear this up. It was coined in the 60s by Mississippi State Police Investigator Rex Armistead. And, And here's why he did it, right? Because Rex knows marketing and branding. And he knows that the media will not take something seriously unless they have a catchy name for it. And so basically, it was his... He was like, if we start using this term, then we can maybe get some coverage and some attention about this crime problem we have with the mob down in the South. Because people didn't think about the South having a mob problem. 
I mean, we still don't. We think of the mob as being like something that happens in New Jersey and New York City, right? Uh, so basically, it's just a loosely fitting catch-all term for any non-Italian continuing criminal enterprise that operates in the American South in the 20th century. But it's used in our story to underline the connections of a guy in Georgia known by the name of J.C. Hawkins. And it's around this time that the almonds are getting huge and coming unhinged that the police in Georgia are trying to work a case against this guy, J.C. Hawkins. Like any good mob boss, State Farm is there. Like any good mob (laughs) boss, one of the big things that's making up his empire is moving drugs. And if you wanted to get close to a copious amount of drugs in Georgia in the mid-70s, you were probably going to bump against the Allman Brothers. Yeah, they're probably at that exit off the interstate, right? And (laughs) to put it simply, this is what happens. In 74, the Georgia State Police launched an investigation into political corruption and city corruption rooted where? In Macon. In Macon, Georgia. Hey, did I, right. hey, hey, who's from there? Is Little Richard from there? He is. Okay. okay. Long, Go ahead. Sorry. Good. Long, tall Sally. And they pretty quickly find links and payoffs between J.C. Hawkins, politicians, and police. But they inadvertently discover something else. And that is that J.C. Hawkins has a pharmacist that he uses to get him all the pills. So the guy is actually doing so much under the table dealing with the mob that he has to fake a robbery of his own establishment to cover up why all this stuff is gone because he's just been selling it to the mob. So this pharmacist becomes very important to our story, and his name is Joey Fuchs. And But they realized during this investigation who is one of Fuchs's best customers it's a guy who worked for the dixie mafia and his name is scooter herring so scooter Uh, works for greg Greg allman Allman. who has a shovel the size of a cadillac (laughs) with illegal narcotics that's just going into wherever the almonds are living and hanging out so so the game becomes this the fbi and the dea want to target scooter herring and joey fuchs to get to Hawkins. This is where the Rico right. stuff comes in. So to bring it way back to the beginning, Murdoch, when you were explaining Rico, this is why it's important. So they get Herring and Fuchs indicted and arrested May 30th, 1976. They even go to the links just for show, I think. They take yeah. Scooter Herring into custody at the Ullman Brothers Macon office. So yeah, just to be like, a- we're watching you and we know the association, they, they get him at work. Yeah, at I mean, pretty... OG for the cops, really, to think about it. So Fuchs, the pharmacist, he he drops first, right? He gets a plea deal and agrees to testify in court and wear a wire. Scooter will not budge. He refuses to rat. He doesn't want to give up Fuchs. He doesn't want to give up his pals in the Almond Brothers or his former boss, J.C. Hawkins, in the Dixie Mafia. So the FBI, they let Fuchs loose. And then they send him wired up into meetings with Scooter Herring and J.C. Hawkins. But they not only get to Fuchs, they get to Greg Allman. And they say, look, buddy, you are a tabloid superstar who's having sex with Cher. And this is not a good look for you. And we have all sorts of things we're pretty sure we can run you up on in terms of charges. But we can probably make those go away if you'll just... You know, I mean, that guy, that guy that was your bodyguard, like, just let us know. Tell us that he was the problem. 
because they don't care about Greg Allman. They're trying to get to J.C. Hawkins, but to get to J.C. Hawkins, they got to get to J.C. Hawkins' guys. Yeah, so word gets out that these two guys, that's Fuchs, the pharmacist, have to put that together, and Greg Allman are going to testify in this case, and the mob is not no, you don't, I don't know if you know much about the mob, but you're not supposed to talk. If you know mob secrets, the first rule of knowing a mob secret is don't tell a mob secret. Don't rat on your friends. Um, <laughs> so talk about rumor and innuendo. Here's something. FBI informants start letting it slip that there are $100,000 bounties on the heads of both the pharmacist and Greg Allman. And that's how Greg Allman gets his own around-the-clock federal agent babysitter. And Greg Allman will do two days of testimony in this trial. And in the show notes, I have an actual brief you can go read. Here's an excerpt. Allman took the stand on the afternoon of the first day of the trial, June 23rd. He testified for the remainder of that day and for a portion of the next. And on direct examination, Allman told the meeting that he met Herring in a Macon bar in 1973 and that there was a subsequent development of a mutual friendship. Allman testified that in late 1973 or early 74, Herring sold him some pharmaceutical cocaine. Is that a thing? Pharmaceutical cocaine? I guess it is. It was. And and some Demerol, which we all know what that did to Elvis, right? Which is a thing. Yeah. Uh, this was the first drug transaction between Almond and Herring, and it instituted a pattern of activity which continued throughout 74. Almond stated that he later came to know the pharmacist, Fuchs, as Herring's supplier, and that on occasion, Almond would deal directly with Fuchs. Usually, Almond would place a drug deal or a drug order with either Fuchs or Herring and would pay Herring upon delivery. This arrangement existed until the latter part of 1974 when Herring told Almond that the government drug inspectors were, quote, really on, end quote, Fuchs. Yeah. And in between his first and second day of testimony, a Macon newspaper, barring the headline, Allman, under heavy guard, death threats reported, made its way into court and back into the jury room. Enough grounds for getting the the conviction thrown out two years later for tainting the jury pool. Yeah, that becomes a huge part of this story is that because the news re- the news is reporting on this and it gets leaked to the jury, it muddies up the trial. JC Hawkins will eventually go to trial. And later in that like that year. And he gets convicted of an array of RICO predicates, right? Like arson and counterfeiting and running a car theft and truck uh, truck hijacking ring. <laughs> like a truck hijacking ring, good grief. Extortion, drug trafficking, insurance fraud, all the, all the classics. The greatest hits of being in the mob, he did them all. Uh, now, he doesn't end up murdering Allman or Fuchs, but Hawkins is believed to have, have murdered a lieutenant of his who he was pretty sure was a police informant. Uh, So this guy was not above it. He was killing people. And then what eventually happens is Scooter gets Scooter. So Scooter gets convicted and he gets 75 years for drugs, which is insane. 75 years. Like that is, that is crazy. And uh, it gets, like I said, it gets overturned. And so by 79, he's back out. And he goes back into the music industry and manages a number of other rock bands uh, before he dies in 2007. Here's a crazy thing. You want to tell us about what happens in pop culture because of Scooter Herring? This is so good. So <laughs> Jim Henson based his Scooter character in the Muppets TV show and movies on Herring 
after meeting him at a benefit concert in the 70s, Scooter on the Muppets, if you remember, was the manager of Dr. Teeth, the show's fictional rock and roll band. That's unbelievable, dude. Now, what happens to the Allman Brothers? They break up uh, because they're real pissed at Greg Allman for being a rat. Like, I, you know... I get it. Not a good situation to put yourself in. You know what I mean? Be, do it. Do it business with the mob in any way, shape, or form, regardless of your habits or addictions. Not the best move. It's it's liable to do bad things to your business endeavors. They they will get back together eventually. They do several different reunions and different things throughout the years. It's never quite the same. Um, but it is interesting because this is a band that has had such a massive, massive effect on music and really is heavily responsible, along with the Grateful Dead, for a lot of the things we still see in jam band culture. And, you know, some of the greatest guitar players of all time, greatest guitar tone and greatest guitar solos of all time came out of that band. And they really weren't in their prime around for that long or put out that much music outside of all their live performances. That's correct. And if you think about their family tree, uh, imagine if you're familiar with Derek Trucks and when he showed up as a teenager playing with these guys, you know, eventually Derek trucks has the Derek trucks band. And then it's the trucks and uh, like he has the other group. Tedeschi, Tedeschi and trucks. Yeah. Susan Tedeschi. Tedeschi and truck. Like, so the, the family tree just continues to grow from some really great artists that sort of infiltrate the well, family. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, to your point, family. if you go and read uh, much about this band in their prime, you look, just look at the last names. Because there's a lot of people who you'll you'll be like, oh, I know that last name, like Betts and you know Trucks and you know, but you may you may not necessarily know that person or know that much about any of this, but you definitely know the names because they do. To your point, the family trees extend and and will influence rock uh, up until today. Yeah, and Government Mule, like that was an offshoot of people that were playing in the band too. So. It's hard to kind of get around, like, if you think about their influence and what their footprint is, the Almonds have a gigantic footprint. And why wouldn't they have a connection to the mob? Because the story wouldn't be that good it without would, it. What right? would have happened? What would have happened if he hadn't ratted on Scooter? Like, you know, like, what would it, would it have changed the trajectory of the band? They, they're a fascinating band. There's so many stories, and there's so much good stuff in the show notes. We, I feel like we just sort of like skimmed the surface on a lot of this stuff. But yeah, thank you for the letter. We are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to throw us one, because it's always nice to hear from you, and we love to, to go d- dig <laughs> and figure out what the hell happened backstage with the guy from Capricorn Records. Man, that one was yeah. bugging me. I'm glad we unearthed that one. Uh, other ways Thanks, to get involved Kevin. in the show, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. That's if you want to support the show with your dollars. We appreciate that. Get some bonus episodes and content. And you can uh, find us on Instagram, instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. We're on Facebook under the story guys. And until next time, uh, Murdoch, what, what do you think people should keep doing? Keep telling stories. And eat a peach. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.